I have a story I'd like to read this morning. And uh, originally I was just going to tell it, but the pictures in this book are so good that I am going to invite the young people and the young at heart to come and sit with me so that you can see these pictures. And if you don't come up front, and hopefully you won't all come up front because even then you won't be able to see um, the pictures, I, I will put it in the... Um, in the community room after the service so that you can see the feeling in these pictures. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful story called The Other Side, and it's set, uh, I think, in the 1950s, somewhere in the southern United States. And it's just a conversation between an African-American girl and a white girl and a fence. Are you saying that you've read this story before? You know it? I actually read it last, last Monday. Last Monday? Did you read it um, at home or at school? At school. At school? Yes, yes. There's a song called The Other Side. Oh. Will you sing it for me after church? Oh, okay. Well, we'll work on it another time. All right. Now, test my reading upside down. That summer, the fence that stretched through our town seemed bigger. We lived in a yellow house on one side of it, and white people lived on the other side. And Mama said, don't climb over that fence when you play. She said, it wasn't safe. That summer there was a girl who wore a pink sweater. Each morning she climbed up on the fence and stared over at our side. Sometimes I stared back. She never sat on that fence with anybody. That girl didn't. Just her. Once when we were jumping rope, she asked if she could play, and my friend Sandra said no without even asking the rest of us. I don't know what I would have said. Maybe yes, maybe no. You can kind of tell that's Sandra, can't you? She looks like she's saying no. That summer, everyone and everything on the other side of that fence seemed far away. And when I asked my mama why, she said, because that's the way things have always been. Sometimes when me and my mama went into town, I saw that girl with her mama. She looked sad sometimes, that girl did. Don't stare, my mama said. It's not polite. That looks good, doesn't it? It rained a lot that summer. On rainy days, that girl sat on the fence in a raincoat. She let herself get all wet and seemed like she didn't even care. Sometimes I saw her dancing around in puddles, splashing and laughing. My mama wouldn't let me go out in the rain. That's why I bought you rainy day toys, my mama said. You stay inside here where it's warm and safe and dry. But every time it rained, I looked for that girl. 
and I always found her somewhere near the fence. Do you go out and play in the rain, or do you stay inside? Your, your puddle splashers. Someplace in the middle of the summer, the rain stopped. And when I walked outside, the grass was damp and the sun was high. And I stood there with my hands up in the air. And that day, I felt free. I felt brave. I got close to the fence, and that girl asked me my name. Clover, I said. My name's Annie, she said. Annie Paul. I live over yonder, she said, by where you see that laundry. That's my blouse hanging on the line. She smiled then. She had a pretty smile. It's a pretty high fence, isn't it? And then I smiled, and we stood there looking at each other, smiling. It's nice up on this fence, Annie said. You can see all over. I ran my hand along the fence. I reached up and touched the top of it. A fence like this was made for sitting on, Annie said. She looked at me sideways. Have you ever sat on top of a fence? It's a little tricky to stay up there, isn't it? My mama says I shouldn't go to the other side, I said. My mama says the same thing. But she never said nothing about sitting on it. Neither did mine, I said. You can see here that Annie's up there on top, and she's reaching down to help Clover climb up. That summer, me and Annie sat on that fence. And when Sandra and them looked at me funny, I just made believe I didn't care. Some mornings, my mama watched us, and I waited for her to tell me to get down from that fence or I'd break my neck or something. But she never did. I see you made a new friend, she said one morning. I nodded, and mama nodded. That summer, me and Annie sat on that fence and watched the whole wide world around us. One day, Sandra and them were jumping rope near the fence, and we asked if we could play. I don't care, Sandra said. And when we jumped, Sandra and me were partners like we used to be. Do you jump rope ever? the spring maybe we'll get some jump rope going here when we were too tired to jump anymore we sat up on the fence all of us in a long line someday somebody's going to come along and knock this old fence down Annie said and I nodded yeah I said someday My African-American colleagues in Unitarian Universalist ministry asked us, their white colleagues in ministry, to not preach about Martin Luther King 
on Martin Luther King Day. Which was an interesting request. They asked us to try to preach about what he might be preaching about if he were alive today. To not simply return to tell the story or a piece of the story of who he was, but to try to move what he was working for forward in this moment in history, in these circumstances, in the situation we're facing now. It took me a a minute, but it made sense to me. And he was talking about the three-headed hydra of militarism and materialism and racism, which was a pretty fierce thing to be taking on. And that's the how big he was thinking and, and how high the stakes were. That it was, he was working on the things that invade pretty much every corner of our lives. So I had to think about what's my own grounding in this and where do I begin that conversation? And I I had to think back, in fact, to a class I took in college, African-American literature. I'm going to rattle off some names that you might know. They might be new names to you, and they're they're names that I'm going to try to pull into our collective conversation more. Um, The past couple of years, I've been trying to bring in contemporary voices of people of color. Um, And I'm trying to to dig a little deeper now to have contemporary voices and voices of another generation or two to hold the complexity of the story. So I read Zora Neale Hurston and I read James Baldwin and Alice Walker, Langston Hughes, W.E.B. Du Bois, and I soaked up the stories of what it meant to be black in America because I really had no idea. I had been alive for almost two decades, and I really had no idea. My professor was a poet with endless patience and bottomless knowledge of poetry and this great, big, warm personality, and he was African-American. The college I attended had made a big commitment to bring students of color and international students to campus, and that's a whole conversation about how the meeting of class and race went in rural Iowa. But what I can tell you most of all is that this literature class and all of the other poetry classes that I took with George Barlow were mostly white middle-class kids. And now I think, oh, maybe that was good because I am sure that my lack of awareness and the lack of awareness in my fellow students showed all the time. And it was probably exhausting for the students of color to have to listen to that all the time. George Barlow had gotten pretty skilled at it. And he was clear he was in the role of teacher. So he just asked question after question. 
And he just handed us book after book, poem after poem. And fortunately, we took it in. I'm sure that his classes and his guidance are part of why I engaged my seminary experience on the south side of Chicago the way that I did seeing the contrast between the wealth and the whiteness of the university and the surrounding African-American neighborhood that was so poor. So it was in college that I came to really understand the reality of the fact that African-American people lived in a state of inherited trauma that they were still profoundly affected by slavery. I understood that their humanity had been questioned and that their physical bodies and labor had been systemically exploited for hundreds of years and that that had not, in fact, stopped when slavery stopped. And I came to understand how much not only my white people had taken from African American people but how much my white people had lost in that taking I remember reading Toni Morrison's book Beloved did you read that book back in 1980 wow and I remember being devastated by what slavery did to that woman's hope for life it's, I remember sitting in the library in a particular carol just in shock of what it meant and if you have not read Beloved um, it's an extremely intense story and um, they made a movie out of it didn't they um That you, that you should read and make sure you have someone you can talk about it with afterwards. <clears throat> because there's a lot to face. Somewhere in all of that reckoning, which was still very personal for me, I, I was really still grappling with my own understanding. I hadn't really gotten it, that it wasn't how wide it was. But somewhere in there, I was walking across campus and thought, we owe an ancestor debt. Which is a, which is spiritual language, I think, for reparations. I knew that I hadn't done the things that I was reading about, that I hadn't caused them but I was sure connected to them. I could see that my ancestors had perpetuated a great evil that they could not see at the time, which is astonishing, but there it is. And so ancestor debt was how I articulated the awareness that my ancestors had done harm and that I had the chance to begin to fix that harm, to repair it. That the harm was to the web of life. That the harm was to our shared humanity, to the relationships not only in the past, but in the present. And that the repair would be done by 
telling the stories. And that's what I was experiencing. I was hearing the stories, reading the stories, understanding a story that I had not known before. And was just beginning to see how I, too, had been wounded. Most of the time when we realize that our ancestors did harm to others or to us, we try to distance ourselves from that, try to diminish the connection, try to say, well, it's not really, they're not really. I also went through that phase of thinking, well, my ancestors were poor uh, upstate New York farmers. They spoke some French, so they're probably kind of Canadian, so we didn't have anything to do with slavery. which was a way of diminishing the connection. There is a way it was easier for friends of mine who had family, who had owned slaves, to face the reality of how they were in the system. Saying we owe an ancestor debt pushes away the shame that causes me or us to try to disown that hard past lets us have a connection, a deep connection, and the connection is you, our ancestors, did something wrong, and I have the chance to repair it, to tell your story and my story whole. And then the repair happens. And then you can own the whole story, saying, it's my chance to repair in this moment. I have a chance to set things right, to set history right. So when I was thinking about owing an ancestor debt, I didn't know that someone in Congress had introduced the bill H.R. 40, which is a commission to study reparation proposals for African Americans. He introduced this bill for um, 30 years annually. And the bill calls for study of four things. First, it acknowledges the fundamental injustice and inhumanity of slavery. It establishes a commission to study slavery, its subsequent racial and economic discrimination against freed slaves. It studies the impact of those forces on today's living African Americans. And the commission would then make recommendations to Congress on appropriate remedies to redress the harm inflicted on living African Americans. Well, the person who sponsored that bill has left Congress due mostly to bad behavior on his part toward women. It's complicated. It can get really clear in one place and then still be not clear in another place. And figuring out how to keep working with each other, even when people do things that are not good thinking, is part of owning the whole story. Well, the bill hasn't passed yet. 30 tries, maybe 
maybe the next time. But the truth is that a lot of the work that's articulated in that bill has been done by writers and journalists and sociologists and justice seekers who've tried to do this study and articulate this harm and begin to think about how do we start to set things right. And one of the recent pieces of work in this area is Tanahisi Coates' piece in the Atlantic magazine, which I thought was written last year, but apparently is from 2014. And I recommend this piece to you highly. Google, I'll get a link on the website. It's a, it's a really stunning piece of writing. It's not a short read, but it is worth every word. Because Coates does the storytelling. He lets the reader experience the reality of what happened to African-American people after slavery as they came north and tried to buy houses, tried to get mortgages, and couldn't get them. Their white neighbors could get them, but they weren't given federally insured loans. He tells the story with such detail and with characters so that you can really feel it. And he talks about how the neighborhoods in Chicago got rearranged for based on where you could get a mortgage or not get a mortgage that was federally insured. And you can see the lines that still exist today where African-American people weren't allowed to have mortgages and where white people were. That the neighborhoods are still shaped by that Racism that happened, well, it happened before I sidled into seminary on the south side of Chicago and thought, oh, the lines here are shocking. How do we move the lines? And I had no idea. And some people have some idea, but they ha- the lines have not moved yet, which means that we still have to figure out how to make those reparations, how to change those lines. When Coates talks about reparations in his article, he is talking about the redistribution of resources and money. He is talking about money and about wealth and about safety nets and about access to education and health care and just plain bodily safety. But he's definitely talking about money. He puts it out there that one professor calculated reparations by giving the numbers for the wealth gap between whites in America today and blacks in America today. And the wealth gap is huge. So wealth is not just what's in your checking account. Because if people assessed my wealth by what was in my checking account, some days they would think, hmm. But I have a mortgage and a house and a car. And I have family members who have those things. And so that's what wealth is. It's all of those resources around you. And that's where the huge gap is between African American people and white people. And Coates wants us to have a national conversation 
about that gap. And he's very philosophical about it. He says it may not be possible to repay, but the public conversation would heal the wound on the American story, would make our whole story mature. He's talking about the ancestor debt that we owe, about making the story whole. And he wants to link the learning of the story with very material changes in our world. We live in a community right now where we can see some of that link happening. The African burying ground in Portsmouth is, I think, a stunning example of making the story whole and of committing money to that change. Have you all been up to the African American burying ground in Portsmouth? We, you know, I sort of forget about it for a few weeks, and then we go downtown, and there's that statue of Mother Africa at the top of the African burying ground, and always someone has put flowers in her hand, and there she stands, holding flowers in the like three degrees. So I know that they're. Not real flowers, but the spirit is there, that sense of she is always there. She now stands there through all the weather and all the changes saying, I am here. My story is here. That burying ground honors the people who were buried there and then forgotten and then remembered. So the burying ground honors their lives and it honors the fact that we live in a world where they were forgotten, where they were paved over. And that that community was willing to notice both their lives and the process of forgetting and the process of remembering. It's a complicated little piece of a city block there. And I think that's what repaying an ancestor debt looks like. Making that kind of public space for the complexity of forgetting and remembering. Of remaking relationships that seemed gone. So I think our work in this world for those of us who are white or were who were raised white because our heritages are always complicated for those of us with white identity is to just keep looking and remembering digging up that story that it's easier to just leave it except for everything we lose when we just leave it. To talk about ancestor debt, to talk about reparations, to talk about what would it look like to redistribute wealth in our country? What would it look like to do that in relation to people of African American heritage and just more broadly? Some people are beginning to 
feel a little uncomfortable because it's hard to think about that. And it's great to engage that spot of being uncomfortable. Ta-Nehisi Coates is just so great about it because he's really clear. He doesn't have a particular end in mind. He doesn't have it, like it has to end up looking like this. Reparations have to be like this. He just really wants to engage the conversation. He wants us to be digging in deeply as white people to think about how we can have a different story and to keep thinking about it. And then we gain deeper selves and stronger connections and we free ourselves from the shame that most of us unawarely walk around with all the time. Part of white identity is to be ashamed of our ancestors. So part of reparations and paying off an ancestor debt is to welcome those old guys in, say, didn't go that well. But we're going to talk about it, and I am going to begin to make it better. So go back to the African burying ground in Portsmouth. Look at Mother Africa standing there with her flowers. Watch the movie Black Panther. Read Beloved. Read that article by Ta-Nehisi Coates. Dive into what it would mean for you and for white people in our tradition to begin to think about reparations. Reparations. 